Thanks so much for joining us here on the Rivers Church Podcast. We see a church full of passionate people who reach the unchurched with the gospel of Jesus. Our heart is to equip people to love, live, and lead in God's kingdom. We hope you enjoy today's message and pray that it encourages you to be all that God has destined you to be. If you need anything, please feel free to reach out to us and check us out on our website at riverschurch.co. That's riverschurch.co. Uh, we're gonna have some fun looking at this here today. We are in a series called Asking for a Friend. And by the way, let me just throw this out there. Um, next Sunday is gonna be a lot of fun. I look forward to our three-year anniversary. We're gonna party. I always love celebrating with people getting water baptized as they go public with their faith in Jesus. And we're gonna do that along with many other things. Really looking forward to next Sunday. I hope you can join us next Sunday right here. And those of you online, Love for you to join us here next Sunday. It's going to be uh, a lot, a lot of fun. And I stand up here uh, really a bit emotional today. Sometimes I can be an emotional guy. Uh, but this topic that I've been really diving into for the last few weeks is, is somewhat heavy, and it's very personal for a lot of us. And so because of that, there's some emotions. And then I just got inundated with a whole bunch of friends that showed up today from three different seasons of my life. And so I have some dear friends that are here today that I just am so glad and honored that they're here. And so it just kind of made me emotional today. And just thank you guys for being here. So good to see friends from literally three different seasons of my life converging here uh, today. And it's super fun. But I'm excited for this message. We're going to, I'm going to give a quick review. And then I'm going to break it into two other parts the history of what brought us to where we're at, and then dive into scripture some more. And what I had to do, because again, I had about an hour's worth of content for us, I had to whittle it down again this week. And so we're going to lean more into the scripture than the history. As fascinating as the history is, we're going to lean more into the scripture because I'd rather us be scripture buffs than history buffs. And I want us to be able to interpret what's going on in today's culture more through scripture, scripture then just know why are we here and how did history bring us here, all that kind of stuff. So that's what we're going to do today, but we're talking about what should a Christian believe about homosexuality? Asking for a friend. Of course, this is one of those uh, important topics that is discussed and cussed and debated and fought over right now, and it's, I think it's so important. And I, I, if you missed last week's message, please go back and listen to last week's message because you hear my heart, you hear our heart on how we should handle this, the posture which we should enter into this conversation and this topic with. It, it's so important, guys. We must be educated, but we also must approach this with humility and grace because this is not a political issue. This is a people issue. And we've politicized this way too much, but we're talking about human beings made in the image of God, which is all of us. And I think it's important that all of us know this. God loves us. Like, he loves you. Please know that. God loves you. And a lot of people think that the church in Christianity is, is anti-gay or that even God is anti-gay. No, God's not anti-gay. He loves you. He loves people no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what they identify as, God loves them. And it's important that we show that to the world. Hey, no matter what, God loves you, and so do I. And let me show you. In fact, they won't believe God loves them unless they see us love them. And so this is why we want to live out our mission. We want to love people. We want to start with that, especially in regards to this topic as we look at what should I believe about homosexuality? So let's review a little bit, and let's talk about what is marriage, because that is the central question to this topic. How do you define marriage? What is marriage? And the culture would say it's a romantic union between two consensual adults or a legal union between two people that love each other, something along that line. But we looked at a biblical definition last week. The Bible would define marriage as a man and woman joined to his wife, or man becomes joined to his wife, and they are united into one. So it's one man, one woman becoming united into one. Now here's the deal. Your definition of marriage will be heavily influenced by your worldview and by your beliefs. In fact, 
what you believe about who created marriage and how marriage got its place in culture matters. Because if you and I believe that mankind created marriage, we thought it up, we invented this thing because we just had this desire to be with somebody, then that's gonna influence how you define marriage and how you approach marriage. But if we believe God defined marriage and created marriage, then that radically changes how we approach marriage. If man created and defines marriage, then we can change it to whatever we want it to be. It doesn't really matter. But if God defined it, and if God created it and is the author of marriage, we gotta trust him and how he set this thing up and trust his ways. So that's why I think it's important for us to go to the Bible. Because the Bible is the authority on morality. We talked about this again last week, but it's just so important for us to have a source of morality for us to go to. Otherwise, morality just becomes subjective. If there's no authoritative place for you and I to go on morality, then we can just believe whatever we want. And these issues of morality become just whatever we feel like. And this is where the slippery slope begins with this topic of the gay lifestyle and homosexuality. Because once somebody says that marriage does not have to be between one man and one woman, it can be between two men or two women, once we go there, it opens up this whole world of endless possibilities. Like, where does it end after that? In fact, that's actually what has happened in this topic of homosexuality. It's become what really what started out as we just want to be accepted and we want to see legalized union with same-sex marriages. Now has become this broad, like now we got to include this and we got to include this and we got to include this. And so you've got the LGBTQIA plus. And so that stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, sometimes questioning is the Q. Uh, I stands for intersex, A for asexual, and plus is to include the categories that continue to become a part of that, like pansexual, two-spirit, and more. And if you identify with that, or you know people identify with that, please know this, God loves you, God loves them. Okay, so we're talking about people made in the image of God. So this is a human issue, and it's easy for us to stand on a pedestal and judge issues, but when you have a conversation with somebody one-on-one, it changes how you approach this. And I wanna give you the ability to have conversations with people in a loving way and an educated way and in a compassionate way so that you and I can build bridges and we can show the love of God to people. So important. Okay, so here's the question. How did we get here? And I'll be... Uh, Frank, with you, I'm going to stick with my, like, my notes here more than I ever would because I don't want to, I could deviate for way too long on some of this stuff. So I'm going to stick here with the script, and y'all will appreciate that. But how did we get here? Now, last week I talked about how we are victims of a culture war. It's not hidden. This isn't just some, thing, some conspiracy theory. No, the there is a gay agenda. It's written in books. It's, they have published it. They have published it in magazines. There's documentaries you can find. So there's no hidden agenda. It's public. It's very public. And you and I are all victims of this culture war. And it all began June 28, 1969. Most people will say this was the beginning the epicenter, the Stonewall riots that took place in New York, which late 60s, you got all the Vietnam protests going on. And so what took place there on June 28, 1969, became the event that propelled the gay rights movement to the forefront of our culture. And I don't have time to go into all the details of all this stuff. Again, I'm just gonna fly over a few highlights of what brought us here throughout history. But when you think about the culture in our country in the 60s, it was ripe for something like this. You take a fringe subculture that was unjustly being treated with brutality and place it front and center in our world, and that's exactly what happened. And so then out of that, next couple of years, you have the Gay Liberation Front that was formed, and their goal was to establish recognition of same-sex relationships and rights for those relationships. The AIDS crisis within the 80s began to wreak havoc, though, on the gay community. So it continued to grow through the 70s. They continued to push their ideology and their agenda. But in the 80s, man, they got hit hard with the AIDS crisis. They had to shift 
their movement inward because they really had to take care of one another because their friends and their partners were dying at alarming rates. This is the moment in history that I think the church failed. Right here in the 80s, guys. We had an opportunity to love, to serve, to be Jesus, to bring healing, to meet people right where they're at. And we responded with judge, judgment and condemnation. And I could go on and on talking about all of this, but what, what was taking place simultaneously during that time was the rise of the moral majority. Many of us have heard of that term, the rise of the moral majority, is during this time that the evangelical world virtually uh, attached itself to the Republican Party. And the issues of gay rights became extremely political. And like I said, I think the church could have responded better during this time. Because what happened is we made people and politics the battleground instead of principalities and the evil rulers of the unseen world. And, you know, we didn't live out Ephesians 6. We made it a battle between flesh and blood instead of what's going on in the spiritual realm. And we even saw leaders of the moral majority say things like AIDS is a punishment for the gay lifestyle. Moving forward, jumping through all the history stuff, you can see where we're at today where now same-sex marriage is legal in our country. And it was a long journey. Started way back in the, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and then last December, it became officially legal, signed by um, our president just last December. But many people will say this. This, sh this cultural shift that took place is the most successful cultural shift in human history. Because what's happened in the last 20, 25, 30 years is really unheard of. It's unprecedented. To where we did not accept same-sex marriage, it was not ever a consideration for our country. Now it is accepted and it is really forced to be celebrated by people. But it's considered to be the most successful cultural shift in human history. So here's what's happened as a result of that. There's now a growing acceptance of the gay lifestyle within Christianity. And Christianity has become divided into two camps. We've got the progressive camp, and we've got the traditional camp. The progressive side has taken this stance where they interpret the Bible to, include, uh, to conclude that same-sex monogamous relationships are okay with God, and they aren't sin. And the big reason for that is because, and this is what they will say, the word homosexual was not in the Bible until 1946. Did you know that? That's the first time that word actually ever appeared in the Bible that we read. It was placed there by the Revised Standard Version. And then the, the translation committee, right before it even was published, decided we didn't translate it properly. It was not an accurate translation of the Greek word, but they decided not to change it for that first publication in 1946. But the RSV did change it for the next publication that came out like 10 years later. And this is why you'll see things, articles, documentaries like this right here, 1946. The mistranslation that shifted a culture. The premise of this documentary is what if the word homosexual is never meant to be in the Bible? Now here's the deal. When you listen to the progressive views and arguments, you see there are some very interesting points that should be studied. I think it's good for you and I to study both sides. We've got to dive into the scriptures to see what is God really saying regard, regarding this. Like, is that true? Like homosexual word was never in the Bible until 1946? Why is that? So we gotta do a deep dive into scripture and that's where we're gonna spend the next few moments is looking at scripture. What does God have to say about this? And I just will say this from the beginning of going into this portion. I don't believe the progressive viewpoint holds up to good biblical scholarship. But let's remember, what is the Bible meant to be? The overarching story of the Bible is a narrative of a loving God who wants to redeem and rescue mankind. That's the message that God has for us, right? It's an invitation from God into a relationship with him where we live by faith and we trust him, even when it doesn't make sense. Okay, so this is the overarching message that God has given us. Please don't forget that. Now, when you go to Genesis in the very beginning, 
we see that God created male and female very clearly. We looked at that last week. So it's clear that there are two genders. Nobody disagrees. Nobody argues with that. But here's the question that people will raise. Is the Genesis account of male and female becoming one in marriage, is it prescriptive or is it descriptive? And this is where the battle begins. Some would say it's descriptive. It's more about human and human rather than male and female. So people will argue, the progressive argument would be, it was Eve's humanness that qualified her to be Adam's helper, not her difference. But I believe it was her difference because God clearly made another gender. He made a female. He didn't make another male. She was clearly female. And also, we looked at last week, but Jesus, when asked about divorce, gave us his stance on marriage, and he pointed us all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, and Jesus affirmed that marriage is between a man and a woman. Okay, so now let's jump into Leviticus. Look at a couple scriptures in Leviticus, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure is probably like your favorite book in the entire Bible, right? When you go through your Bible reading plan, you know, you go Genesis, Exodus, you're like, oh, that's pretty good, this is awesome, you know, and Exodus starts slowing down a little bit, but you got the Ten Commandments, and then you get to Leviticus, you're like, what on earth? And you start reading Levitical law and different colors of mold and what to do, and I got to go outside the camp to go to the bathroom and dig a hole and cover it up, and like, what's Leviticus? It's crazy, but it's important. It's very important. You're going to see why. So let's look at a couple scriptures here. Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20, 13. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. See right there, I can tell, like, you just love Leviticus right there. It's like, Hold no punches, it's just straight to the point. But it's important for us to understand what is Leviticus all about? It is a call to holiness. That is the theme of Leviticus. God has given all these instructions. I know there's a lot of instructions there, a lot of crazy stuff in there, but he's saying, I have called you to be holy. You're about ready to go and occupy a land full of unholy people, and you are called to be different, to be set apart, to live differently, to look differently. And so Leviticus is a call to holiness as they're getting ready to occupy the land that God has for them. But what you see in these Levitical passages is that it's very clear what God's stance on homosexuality is. Now, the main argument from the progressive side to affirm gay relationships is this. Well, we don't follow Old Testament law anymore. We're in the New Covenant, to which many people would be like, uh, okay, yeah, good point. So how do we handle that? How do we, how do we approach this? Because again, we want to really understand what is God's stance on this? How do I scripturally understand this topic? So reply would be, well, we certainly don't want to throw Leviticus out of the Bible, do we? I think it's important that it's there, and there's a lot of important things in there. In fact, did you know that Jesus quoted from Leviticus 19 more than any other Old Testament passage? He quoted a lot of Old Testament passages too. Leviticus 19 talks about love your neighbor. So there's a lot in Leviticus that finds itself in the New Testament. In fact, Paul and Peter both quote Leviticus as they call us to live holy lives. And so here's what we see. The Old Testament sexual ethic is carried on clearly into the New Testament church life. Now, theologians teach us that there are three types of laws in the Old Testament. Ceremonial law, civil law, and moral law. So you got the ceremonial law. This is what you do when you come to worship, offer sacrifices, forgiveness of sin. That's the atonement thing. Thankfully, all that's been taken care of by Jesus. Don't have to worry about ceremonial law. Then you got the civil law. Well, that doesn't apply to us because we don't live under a theocracy here, so that was for them. But then you got the moral law. These are the things that are true for all people in all places at all times. And what we see is the moral law of the New Old Testament is carried on into the New Testament. So it's important we filter all these things, understand all this. So, so much more we could say about Leviticus and the Old Testament. Let's jump forward to the New Testament. Before we look at some New Testament passages, here's one of the big arguments that people will throw out there. Well, 
the Greco-Roman world did not know about same-sex monogamous relationships. So when they address this topic of homosexuality, this is so foreign to them, there's no way they have a concept of what it means to have a committed, faithful, lifelong, same-sex relationship, because that's what people are wanting to do today. And so they're like, they just don't understand. We can redeem it now, but that wasn't their context. But just a little study in history will show that is actually not even close to the truth. Uh, There is so much documentation from secular authors about homosexuality and its practice within the Roman culture and within the Greek culture. There's books out there, even titled like homosexuality, like Roman homosexuality, things like that, okay? So this was a clear practice. There was a clear excess of it. They were trying to also make it normal for some people, and this was taking place hundreds of years before Jesus, hundreds of years after Jesus. Jesus, so they knew about this. They, what, they were, what we're dealing with today, they were dealing with then. And I think that's why the writers of the New Testament specifically address this issue. And by the way, they didn't just address homosexuality too, right? Addressed all sexual immorality, all of it. They addressed all sins. And really one of the topics of debate becomes, well, is it really a sin? But it's very clear that the Bible and the New Testament authors specifically address a lot of different types of sin. Like you start reading through 1 Corinthians, and Paul's just hitting a bunch of things that the church is dealing with. Like, you guys are doing this, and that's okay. And so it's not just about homosexuality. This is just one of the many sins. But the debate becomes, is it really sin? Because if it is sin, we want to avoid it, right? Sin is destructive in nature. You could say, God is not anti-gay, but he is anti-sin. Because sin destroys us. It hinders our intimacy with him. It's destructive in nature. So you and I want to avoid any sin in our life because it will destroy us. That's what it does. And so we've got to really honestly seek, is this a sin? Okay, so let's go to Romans. Romans 1, the first passage we're going to look at here. How you guys doing? You doing all right? You with me here? Okay. Okay, we're going a little bit more into the head knowledge today. Last week was a lot of heart. I say, please listen to last week. This week, we're looking at a lot of head stuff. Romans 1, verse 21. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relationships with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking, and let them do things that should never be done. So what you see in here is clearly a a drive and a passion that's out of control for sex and sexuality. Like, it's just crazy. And here's what you'll find. If you talk to a gay Christian, they'll look at that and they'll say, well, yeah, I get that and I see that, but that's not me. And for the most part, I think they're right. Like, I'm, like, I'm not looking to do like, like this overindulgement and taking advantage and doing all this. Like, I'm just wanting to be with one person for the rest of my life. Now, again, many of them cannot help their attraction. Please understand this. This is the part where we've got to be compassionate in all this and not be judge, judgmental in regards to this. A lot of people pray, God, take this away from me. And sometimes he has, but... Many times he doesn't. 
So they have this longing that is different than most people, and we've got to be compassionate about that, just like anyone else would have a, you know, a longing for other things that we would say, like, that's, don't go that direction as well. We've got to understand this. And so they just can't help their same-sex attraction. But when we look at this here, and I try to honestly interpret Romans 1, I would say that Paul is not talking about just motives here. I think he's talking about the nature of the sin. Because a lot of people look at this, and in the progressive view will try to reinterpret this, like, look at the motive here and all this. Like, it's, yeah, I'm not into that. Like, that's not me. But I don't think it's just a motive issue. I think it's the nature of the sin as well. And everyone agrees, when everyone reads this, like what Paul is describing here is sin. Very clear. In fact, it actually said that word in there. Like there, this is sin. So it seems clear to me that Paul is speaking against the practice and the nature of same-sex relationships because they go against the natural order of how God made us. Okay, this sexual behavior of this type goes against the divine design that God has for us, right? So this is why Paul says, they traded the truth about God for a lie. It's a lie. Now, here's, here's the deal. The enemy wants you and I to believe a lie. And this is his main tactic. If he can get you and I to believe lies, then we have yoked ourselves, we have agreed ourselves with a lie with him, and that will bring bondage and then bitterness, and this opens the door for all these things. But the Bible talks about do not give the devil a foothold. When you and I believe a lie, then we're giving him a foothold for him to do more in our lives. This is what the devil did in Genesis chapter three. He got Adam and Eve to believe a lie. It's what he continues to do to us now today. Like he, if he can get us to believe a lie, then that's the beginning of him creating bondage in our life because that's what sin does. It just leads to bondage. It leads to destruction. And so it's important that you and I are just learn to grow in awareness of, are there any lies that I have agreed with that are affecting how I live my life? And so this passage here just speaks to that point, specifically about homosexuality, but it's true for all sin and all issues like this, okay? We don't want to live by lies, right? We want to live by the truth of God so that we can walk in the freedom that he has for us, okay? So let's pause just for a few more moments here and just talk about Scripture, Okay, scripture is meant to teach us, guide us, train us, rebuke us in righteousness so that we can become more and more like Jesus, so we can grow closer to the Lord, right? That is the purpose of scripture. All of those things are gonna happen because of scripture, right? And so we gotta let scripture speak to us and let God speak to us by his spirit through his word that is living and active as we really study and wrestle with these things. But what happens is when we begin to read these things, especially with uh, gay people or gay Christians, they begin to feel this heap of condemnation. They begin to feel uh, shame. And the goal is not to condemn or to shame. That's not the goal. The goal is let's look at God's word and let's, if there's anything in darkness, let's bring it out of darkness into the light. Because in the darkness, this is where the devil has us. We bring it out into the light. This is where healing can take place. We bring it out to light. We're bringing it into truth. And Jesus says, you live by the truth and you will walk in freedom. You know the truth and it will set you free. Remember, Jesus has freedom for us. That is his goal, which we'll talk a little bit more about in a few moments. So back to this Romans passage. The progressive view on the Romans passage and the Leviticus passage is that they're speaking about abuse and power. What they do is they translate some of the words to say, you know, see, it's, it's men with boys, not men with men and all this. And so it's clearly abuse and power. And again, they weren't aware that there's same-sex relationships that could be redeemed by mutual devotion and monogamy. So this concept would have been completely foreign to them. But uh, a deep study in Scripture doesn't reveal power dynamics. And again, just a thorough study of history will reveal that they most certainly were aware of long-term same-sex relationships, all right? So that's why it's important we keep going to the Bible and just wrestle through this. You know what's interesting about this book? This book is the most debated book in history of mankind. You realize that? Uh, but it's also the most influential book in the history of mankind. Sociologists, historians will agree that it is Christianity that has helped our culture progress to where it is. 
There is a sacredness for human life because of the influence of this book in Christianity. We aren't barbaric like we used to do, especially how we did warfare and all that kind of stuff and how we treat one another and respect people. All of that is because of the influence of this amazing book and Christianity. But now people want to just kind of go away. We don't care about the Bible. We don't care about Christian values. But you can't ignore that because sociologists and historians will agree to that. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 6 and look at this passage here. There's a couple important passages in the New Testament that speak to this topic. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which we're going to look at here. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, in the King Jimmy version, says this. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Okay, so King James written in the early 1600s. Now you, tra- you, you fast forward 300 years, 1946, and the RSV committee translates that verse. And for the very first time, instead of abusers of themselves with mankind, they translate that to say homosexuals. But then they change it. And so this is what the, the RSV currently says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor sexual perverts. That's what they changed it to. They felt like that was a better translation as opposed to homosexual. And so then the progressives will say, yeah, sexual perverts. That's not me. That's not us. That's not what I'm trying to do. And it fortifies their position. Okay, now let's look at the ESV. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Okay, so this is that verse where it's hotly debated. How do we handle this translation? This is where the word homosexual or homosexuality first appeared in the Bible in 1946, and there's good reason for that. That word homosexual didn't actually exist about 50, 60 years before that. It was invented and created in the late 1800s. By the way, same time that heterosexual was invented as well. Okay, both those words didn't exist until late 1800s. And then you got the next translation of the Bible, and they insert that. But then they decide, this maybe isn't the best translation of these Greek words that are going on here. And so the RSV changed it back, but many other Bibles still use homosexual, as you can see. But here's the argument. Since the Bible was changed in 1946 to add the word homosexual for the very first time ever, that it was never meant to be in the Bible in the first place. And furthermore, many scholars, maybe even most scholars will agree that homosexual is not the best translation of those two Greek words that we're looking at there, malakoi and arse, uh, arse nokoitai. Those are the two Greek words. Now, I never took Greek. I never got into that. And I'm not a Greek scholar or a Hebrew scholar, but I love listening to people talk about it. I've studied this. I've listened to people talk about all this. And even from listening to them, I can tell this is a difficult translation. It's very difficult. So what do we do about this? Because the progressives will take this word and say, see? And what they do is they use that to say, this word was inserted and it shouldn't have been in 1946. And now because of that, all these other translations have added it because they look back to the original translation of RSV and they're just using that translation. And it's caused pain in my life. It's caused judgment in my life. And now all of a sudden, now the Bible and the church is anti-homosexual because this word suddenly became in there. And so they use it to, again, kind of build up that progressive stance. Christianity and the church is now anti-gay because of this translation in 1946. And here's how they add to that argument. Well, for years, the the church was wrong about the issue of slavery. They even used the Bible to justify slavery. And then they changed and they got it right. And homosexuality is the same thing. And so this is an interesting argument because now we're placing this gay agenda in the same conversation as civil rights issue and slavery, and it just really changes the conversation here. And, and by the way, I would say this, that you can't really compare the two things because what happened was, yes, Christians did use the Bible to justify slavery, 
That's crazy wrong. They were using the Bible. They were taking things out of the Bible and misinterpreting it to justify what they wanted to do. That's what they were doing. And if we want to do that with homosexuality, we're free to do that again if we want, but we're going to have a generation that's going to come up behind us and say, wait a second, we messed it up again. Why do we try to change the Bible or, or interpret the Bible to just justify what we feel like doing? Because that's what we did with slavery. And what we did with slavery was wrong. So you'll see things in the gay agenda like this. Gay is the new black. And this was published you know, 15 years ago. And they want to make it, again, like a civil rights issue. Like, you guys just need to get on board and get with the times and understand that we've got to now accept this and change this position now, too. So then, again, progressives will just add to the whole debate. The language in that Greek there is so unclear. Do we really know what it's saying? How can we really know? Most scholars would say this. Um, and again, they would also say they're, they're talking about exploitation of power and abuse. But the tr traditional stance really interprets it differently. Paul is actually taking two words from Hebrew found, by the way, in Leviticus, and he's, he actually has invented a new Greek word is what it appears has happened. That's why it's so difficult for them to translate this. And so Paul, being well-versed in his training in, like, has the whole Torah memorized, knows Leviticus. He's taken two Hebrew words, and it looks like he's invented a Greek word. And so, yeah, maybe homosexual is not the best translation, but most scholars would say men who sleep with men would be the best way to translate that, which is what the NIV actually says. Furthermore, if Paul really wanted to make it about abuse and power, he would have clearly articulated that. There are words he could have easily used for that case in place of the other words that he did use. Plus, Let's make sure that we take the message of the entire Bible, the overarching message of the Bible, into account here. What is the overarching sexual ethic designed by God that, it, that is laid out in Scripture? And it seems to be that marriage is one man and one woman, and sexual relations is meant for that context. Okay, that seems to be the divine design. We look at the scripture as a whole because it's easy to take one scripture out of context and make it what we want. So we got to look at the narrative of scripture. Okay, so I want to end by, by landing the plane with this. Let's look at four callings that you have from God. There's some callings that you and I have from God and how do we respond from this? Last week, we really leaned into how Jesus responded and how Jesus really shows us. He's the model for us in how to do this. And so I want to end this week by looking at four callings that we have by God. The first calling is this. You are called to live under the authority of God's word, not your feelings. It's about the authority of this book, not our feelings. Hey guys, God gave us feelings so we can enjoy life and feel our way through life, but they're, they're not good to guide us through life. Feelings are not meant to be God. So that's why we've got to go to Scripture and interpret all of our feelings and wants and desires through this book right here. Very important. So let's look at a few Scriptures, again in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. You say, I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. Paul is recognizing here, hey, yeah, you're free to do whatever you want. We have free will. But that doesn't mean it's gonna be good for you. And this, by the way, is how we raise our kids, right? Hey, feel free to touch that stove. Let's watch how that goes for you. Feel free. Some parents are like, no, 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 no. Some parents are like, yeah, just, just touch it. And then they learn, no, not a good thing to touch. Okay, so we're free to do whatever we want. It does not mean it's good for us. Now, our culture likes to define freedom as you're free to do whatever you want. No inhibitions. No one has to tell you what to do. You just exercise the freedom that you have and do whatever. Whatever makes you feel good, whatever makes you happy, I'm in support of. It's your freedom. But that's not biblical freedom. Biblical freedom is you and I looking to God, trusting him and his ways that he's laid out for how he's called us to live. And here's what we find. 
when you and I obey God's ways, that actually leads to freedom. Because freedom without inhibitions just leads to craziness, it leads to chaos, it leads to lots of pain and confusion and hurt, and it's just a selfish life. And we become our own God. That's why we gotta make God God. He's, he has divine design for all of us, and so obedience to him brings freedom. That's scriptural freedom right there. Okay, so Paul's speaking to that, like acknowledging, hey, we're free to do whatever we want, but it doesn't mean it's good for you. Then he goes on, he says, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. So we want to live under the authority of God's word, not our feelings, right? So I believe God's word is clear regarding sexual ethics and regarding marriage. And if we don't stick to God's word, then where is it going to go? We're going to say it's okay to have sex with animals and kids and all that kind of stuff, right? Where does it go? Number two, second calling you have from God, to uphold the sacredness of sexuality. This is so important we understand that how God has made you is so sacred, so beautiful. You are Imago Dei, the image of God. And we want to uphold the sacredness of who we are, especially our, sac- our sexuality. Hebrews 13 says marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. There is a sacredness, purity, and a beauty to how God has designed us to live. So our culture wants to make this gay rights issue an issue of civil rights, just like racism. But here's why that argument doesn't work for the Christian. See, the violation of race is actually a violation of the sacred. But to the Christian, the violation of sex is also seen as the same way, is a violation of the sacred. See, many people don't see it that way today. It's not a violation because there's consent. They love each other. It doesn't matter if they want to be together. What, does, what harm are they doing? That's whatever they want to do. But uh, for the Christian, we believe that if two people say they love each other, that doesn't mean they can express their love in any way they choose. It doesn't mean we can redefine how God has set things up. Okay, we believe that love is defined not in a self-pleasing way, but love is defined by God. He's the one who created love, he defines love, and is in fact the true essence of love himself. There is a sacredness to how God has made us. A couple years ago, my family and I listened to a podcast that interviewed this, this girl named Rachel, she named Rachel Gilson. Fascinating story, came from a small town, was accepted to an Ivy League school because she was smart and brilliant. I think it was Yale, and in that transition time, she came out as like, I just feel a, a longing, a desire for other women. And so she came out as, as a lesbian and was starting to pursue that. Well, at the same time, she met some Christians and she found Jesus at Yale. And so she became a Christian, and the ladies that led her to Jesus were themselves lesbians. And so they're like, hey, let's follow Jesus, but just so you know, it's okay to still be a lesbian. And she's like, oh, great. It's fine. Awesome. It's honestly fascinating story. I highly recommend you just Googling her and, and, and listening to her share her story. So she's being trained as a lawyer at Yale. And so she's being trained in how, to, how do I dissect and study and just tear things apart and debate and all this kind of stuff. And as she grows in her faith, she's reading all these scriptures that her friends are giving her. And she's like, I don't know if this is what the Bible is actually saying. And she had a crisis for herself of like, what am I going to do? Because I had this longing to date other women, but it doesn't seem like God wants me to do that. And she had to wrestle with where she was going to stand in that. And she actually came out and says, okay, if this is God's stance, I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to choose to even just be celibate for the rest of my life. And this is the choice many of them have to make when they really dive into scripture. And they say, I just don't think God has given me permission to do this. And that is not easy. So why you and I must be compassionate, 
gracious. Because many of us will never be able to identify with that. But again, it's a fascinating story. And she recognized this. My sexuality is sacred according to God, and I want to live according to his design. Third calling you have is this. Serve God, not sex. Sex is good and God is God. But let's not reverse those two, because a lot of people want to reverse those two, right? God is good and sex is God. We want to reverse that. And we live in a, this is a day and age where dating and relationships and sex, it's, it's God to many people. It's what they live for. It's like the pinnacle of life. Even within the church, we've made an idol, a God out of marriage. Uh, but the goal of life is Jesus. Let's, let's live for Jesus. Let's make him God. Okay, that's, he's the one we're pursuing, okay? So serving God leads to freedom, but serving sex leads to bondage because it's sin, right? Okay, so serve God, not sex. And uh, let's look at First Thessalonians 4. Because it speaks so clearly to this. Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God. As we've taught you, uh, you live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will is for you to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans who do not know God and his ways. Serve God, not sex. The fourth call, the last call is this. You and I are called to love all people. Let's not forget this. Love all people. Okay, the world is looking for something that only God can offer them. They are looking for pure, unfiltered, unadulterated, faithful, true love. That's what everybody longs for, and we can only find that in one place, and that's in God. I'll think that you know, love is something you make with a sexual partner or something you feel towards somebody, which is really just based upon self and me, but true love is only found in God and is defined by God and is only experienced through a relationship with Him. The world needs what God desperately has for them. That's why you and I need to allow God's love to fill us on a regular basis, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, like we sang about today, so we can give the, the, the love of God to everybody we come in contact with. First John speaks to this and says, God showed us, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. Amen? How you doing? Man, I just downloaded a whole bunch of stuff on you, and some of you, I can just feel your brain is like, okay, Tyrone, are you done yet? Because, like, my brain's hurting. And you're just thanking God that I skipped over 15 minutes of other stuff. That would have been really good, but maybe just too much for this moment right here. So... Here's my prayer for us. I pray that you and I can show the world how real God is and show the world his love. We want people to experience the power of God, but I don't think they're gonna experience the power of God until they see and feel the love of God from us, right? So let's first show them the love of God so they can encounter the power of God. I pray that we can be a people that show grace and forgiveness Come on, there's kids growing up in our churches, in our, in, our, in our schools, even right now. We got family members, coworkers all around us that are wrestling with the same sex attraction. Let's be a safe place. Let's be safe people that they can talk to about this with no judgment, no shame, just love. Let's talk. I'm here for you. I want to walk with you through this. I believe God has great things for you, and he loves you too. Can we just put our arms around people who are struggling with anything, but especially this issue, and not judge and shame them and say, come on, let's follow Jesus together. I pray that we would be a church. I pray that you would be a people. I pray that your house would be a house that's full of love of God, that people could talk to you about anything. 
That's my prayer, that we be people who extend grace. I mean, after all, hasn't God given you more grace than you deserve? So come on, this is how I want to end. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6 again in the Amplified. And this is, this is my send-off for us, okay? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit or have any share of the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate by perversion, nor those who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, those whose words are used as weapons to abuse, insult, humiliate, intimidate, and slander, nor swindlers will inherit or have any share in the kingdom of God. And such were some of you before you believed. Let us not forget about the grace of God in our life. Let us not forget about what he has done in our life because it's easy for us to get all self-righteous afterwards. And what that does is just cause a division and it extends this cultural battle that's going on. And there's a lot of people out there, Christians, churches that are like, we declare war on the culture, uh, on the gay agenda. Maybe you've seen this. We're declaring war on the gay agenda. Here's what I wanna say. We declare love on the gay agenda. We declare love on people and build bridges because we're not out to fight people. We're out to care and love and be there for them. So, verse 11, and such were some of you before you believed. Don't ever forget it, friends. But you were washed by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. You were sanctified, set apart for God, and made holy. You were justified, declared free of guilt in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit of our God, who is the source of the believer's new life, and changed behavior. Amen? Come on. Why don't you stand your feet right now? Why don't you stand up and let's pray. Thanks again for listening to this message at Rivers Church. We'd love to have you subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. To learn more about what's going on in the life of our church community, check us out at riverschurch.co. I pray that this week you would walk in the power and the presence of God. Thanks for joining us.